Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Very glad uh, to have you all along for today's show. Um, It strikes me as we start this conversation that Georgia Republicans have a lot to feel good about coming out of the midterm elections. They dominated. They won every uh, race on the statewide ballot. They dominate, continue to dominate the legislature, both the House and the Senate, although Democrats have closed the gap. They um, dominate the uh, congressional delegation here in Georgia as well. But they lost a crucial U.S. Senate seat to Raphael Warnock. And so they are beginning to assess where they head as the party moves into the future, because it's quite clear that as Georgia becomes increasingly purple, um, it may not be possible to follow the same path they've been on despite their victories in the midterms uh, this year. It's a party that's been dominated by Donald Trump and far right wing politics. And um, we know that that's had mixed results here in Georgia. So why are we doing a show with just Republicans today? Uh, first of all, we're going to do the same thing with Democrats in the next few days. Um, but, but here's why. The two-party system that has functioned in this country since virtually our founding has been crucial because it offers voters choices. It gives them an opportunity to assess political philosophies, policies, and decide which of competing interests they prefer and care about, whether it's the conservative values and policies typically embraced by Republicans or the more progressive values and policies of Democrats. So we need that kind of healthy, sustainable, policy-driven parties to make our country work well. And that's why today we'll talk to Republican leaders who want to move the party in a direction that will embrace uh, policies much more than just partisan rhetoric. And we'll do the same with Democrats, as I said, moving forward. So let me introduce first our Republican panel. Um, We're really pleased to have the lieutenant governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, with us today. Jeff, you... um, are, we're really at the front edge, I, I think certainly the first highly visible Georgia Republican to break with uh, Donald Trump and to uh, move into what you call uh, GOP 2.0, a movement that you believe uh, can show the way for Republicans to regain a party that in many ways have been lost to them. So, Jeff, thank you so much for being here today. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, We're also joined by Jordan Fuchs. Jordan is a political consultant. She's been uh, 
doing work for Republican candidates. She was on leave from her job as Deputy Secretary of State during the campaign when she worked on the Brad Raffensperger campaign. And, uh, Jordan, we know this is the last time that you are, now that you're back at the Secretary of State's office, going to be uh, in a position where you can talk to us from your partisan role as a Republican. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Bill. And we're joined by Eric Tannenblatt. Those of you who listen to Political Rewind know that Eric is a leader in both the Georgia and National Republican uh, Party. He went to work first for Paul Coverdale many years ago. He became Sonny Perdue's uh, uh, chief of staff for the first term of his governorship. He worked with George H.W., George W., and Jeb Bush on their presidential runs, went on to work with Mitt Romney as well. He's always been a major bundler, raising a great deal of money for Republicans. He's now a partner with Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Um, Eric, you know we're very glad to have you here as well. I'm quite glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. And we're joined by, as I am every Tuesday, by my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tamar Hallerman. Hi, Tamar. Good morning, Bill. Looking forward to this panel. Yeah. Before we turn to uh, talking with uh, the panelists about the Republican Party and the crossroads that they, I think, feel it's at, let's do a quick look at the big news that uh, we learned about overnight last night. The Department of Justice has now issued subpoenas for some key players in uh, the Republican Party, both here in Georgia and, and elsewhere, all of whom, to one extent or another, were involved in the lie about a rigged 2020 election and efforts to overturn the results here in Georgia. Yeah, this, this subpoena was no surprise at all. In the last uh, couple of days, we've heard about similar subpoenas going out to state and local officials in places like Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, places, uh, swing states that were also contested by the Trump campaign. So we were very much expecting similar subpoenas to come in uh, to Georgia. So we now know the Secretary of State's office has gotten one for, for Brad Raffensperger. We also have learned, according to my colleague David Wicker, that officials in Cobb County have also received a subpoena. And of course, Cobb County was at the center of an audit after the 2020 elections looking at um, signature matching on absentee ballots. It was of keen interest to the Trump administration. That's where then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows showed up to that audit to, to try and get a peek in. He was not allowed in the building. And so the subpoena is asking for communications that the Secretary of State's office had gotten from members of Trump's inner circle, lawyers who'd been involved in the effort to contest election results, folks like Kenneth Chesbrough, uh, Jenna Ellis, Rudy Giuliani, um, Cleta Mitchell, a lot of names that I've come, you know, come to know through this local investigation here in Fulton County that are also clearly of interest to the Justice Department. One other quick name, Lynn Wood, an attorney who went all MAGA. I mean, he went full out MAGA in the aftermath <laughs> of the 2020 election and was responsible for what I think it's fair to say some of the most bizarre conspiracy theories about how the <laughs> 2020 election was stolen. All right. So we're going to keep track of that story. And there are ways in which that, that plays into our conversation uh, uh, today. But we'll keep track of what happens as the special counsel at DOJ looks into uh, the people who have been subpoenaed now that um, uh, Tamar just talked about. Um, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, let me start with you, if I may. Uh, in your book, GOP 2.0, 
you go all the way back close to the beginning to talk about a rally that then-President Trump held in Georgia just a couple of days before the 2020 presidential election. You were asked to speak that day, uh, that evening, and when you got up and began making what you thought were the kinds of remarks about policies, conservative policies that serve the interests of not just Republicans, but Democrats as well, you sensed not just a restlessness, but in some cases, people starting to boo what you were saying. And you conclude by saying, I stood on stage looking out at people who'd voted for me just two years ago. Why did I feel like a stranger? So that was back in 2020, and it was the beginning of your distancing yourself from uh, Donald Trump. But then let's move it to the present. In, we know that you famously went on CNN uh, just uh, as the early voting was unfolding for the runoff election, and you said, I had two candidates. I just couldn't find anything that made sense for me to put my vote behind. I walked out of that ballot box showing up to vote but not voting for either one of them. You'd stood in line for an hour waiting to cast the ballot and couldn't do it. So there's a continuing theme there, it seems to me. Um, Lieutenant Governor. Yeah, so let's go back to the rally. Uh, you know, I had written a five-minute speech to appeal to, the, you know, to, to America, right? There's 200 cameras sitting there and 30,000 people wearing red hats. I knew the 30,000 people wearing red hats were going to vote for Donald Trump or for a Republican. And so I had shaped a message that said, every time we improve education, it's not just for Republicans, it's for Democrats, too. And there was a scattering of booze. Every time we lower taxes, it's not just for Republicans, it's for Democrats, too more booze. And at the end, I said, our policies are so good as Republicans, they even help the people that don't vote for us. All because I'm trying to appeal to a moderate crowd across America, and I got booed even louder. And, you know, that was a huge wake-up call that, you know, we, we had a problem. Houston, we've got a problem. Fast forward to the event <clears throat> two weeks ago. You know, I got up wearing probably the same sweatshirt I'm wearing now, uh, scrambled out the door at uh, 8.30 in the morning to go to the polling place, realizing that uh, once I got there, they didn't open until 9, and then stood in line for a little while until it got to my, 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 my time in line. And, and look, it'd be a great Hollywood story if I said, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I bit my nails down at the cuticles trying to figure it out. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to show up and vote, uh, you know, take on the privilege of voting, but didn't, wasn't going to vote for anybody in the box. Uh, I wasn't planning on sharing that story, right? But uh, I was on TV that night, and somebody asked me a question. I gave an honest answer. That's exactly what had happened. Uh, apparently, uh, I, I think, Bill, it resonated because I think so many people understood that. I think so many Republicans understood the dilemma that we were in. We had a handpicked candidate from Donald Trump that made absolutely no sense to put our support behind. But because of the circumstances, because of the name ID, because of Donald Trump's early endorsement, he cleared the pathway in the primary we were forced to deal with what I believe to be the worst candidate in the history of our Republican Party. And a lot of that, of course, has to do, as you point out, with the hijacking of the party. And I think many Republicans would use that word of hijacking of the party by Donald Trump. So let's dig into that a little bit. But as we do, Jordan, um, let me ask you and Eric to both comment on the remarks I made at the start of the show. Uh, and that is 
the importance of a two-party system where there are actually ideas <laughs> that each party puts forward and gives voters choices. Jordan, you're in the Secretary of State's office. You know a lot about elections, and it strikes me that we've lost uh, that um, choice when people go to the polls of competing ideologies, philosophies, policies. I, I, sure. I think both parties are needed. It's, it's a check and balance system that voters are demanding. Not all the voters out there are Republican or Democrat. There's a lot of swing voters. There's a lot of independents. And if you're not appealing to that middle and you're not coalition building, you're not going to be able to win a state that is currently in play. And what currently in play means is that it could flip. And so that's where the, the, the coalition building comes in. And, and sure, the, the party probably needs to look at what its vision is moving forward. But one of the takeaways that I think we can all, all, all agree on is that uh, in the state of Georgia, election deniers didn't fare well in November, and they didn't fare well in the runoff. And if your plan is to contest the election but not campaign in the state of Georgia, and you campaign harder after November than you did before November, you're not going to fare well. And I feel like all of these things are incredibly obvious. But if you also tell your voters that you can't trust the voting machines and you can't trust the absentee ballots, you're going to have a hard time turning out your own team. So I think that's where we're at in the state of Georgia. And, and on the left, you had Stacey Abrams, who contested her election through the courts. The arguments were incredibly similar, uh, at least on, on the, um, the legal side. And the results were pretty similar as well. People were very angry at the system in 2018. They demanded reforms. And, uh, you know, we, we saw the results of that. Eric? Well, look, you know, you got to look look at history. Um, you know, right now things look pretty bleak, but you know, I I, I remember going back to 1988 when we had an open presidential race and Pat Robertson was running, and he brought all of these uh, they called them Reagan Democrats, but um, social conservatives into the Republican Party, and it was very ugly here in Georgia where they tried to take mm -hmm. over. Uh, the state Republican Party. And then, you know, over a four-year-plus period, uh, those new people that came into the party were assimilated into the mainstream of the party, culminating with the election of Paul Coverdale, who, you know, was perceived not as a social conservative when he got elected in 1992. And, and, and so, you know, you can look at the Tea Party in the early 2000s after Obamacare was introduced and, you know, how the Tea Party brought in people that were not involved in the party and they ultimately assimilated. I think this one's a little different in that I think Donald Trump uh, in 2016, uh, you know, he was sort of a vessel. He, he, he sort of spoke to the those disenfranchised people that felt government let them down. And he, he almost it was this sort of cult like personality and, you know, he still has a lot of control over those people. However, I think that that's starting to wane. And I think as you've seen in, you know, whether it was the 
social conservatives that ultimately became the Christian coalition to the Tea Party, to the Donald Trump supporters. I think our system works. Uh, it gets ugly at times and messy. I think you can look on the other side of the aisle and the Democrats have the same issues and problems. They're just a look, slight, you know, slightly different. Um, but I, I think that, you know, I, I believe we're starting to see, um, you know, the, the tide turning. And, you know, I think it's, it's leaders like Lieutenant Governor Duncan who are speaking out. And he was one of the early folks to speak out. But uh, you're starting to hear more and more. Um, and I think that this election only reinforced that. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in this presidential primary, because I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that the former president's going to get the nomination. Um, Tamara, I want to bring you in, but Eric, just one quick side note. You go back to 1988 when Pat Robertson forces tried to take over the state Republican Party. I have clear memory of the Republican convention in Albany that year when they staged massive demonstrations on the floor of the convention hoping to take over. John Stuckey was chairman of the party at the time, and at one point he was so animated and so angry about what was happening that as he banged his gavel, it broke and flew up to the rafters of the convention hall. But perhaps more important, they did the same thing at the Republican National Convention that summer, trying to seat an alternate slate of delegates. Just to remind people of the history there, Eric. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, we sent two delegations to New Orleans to the National Convention that year. And because we and I mean, because there was two there was a division in the in the party. Tamar. I have a question and I'd like to start with Lieutenant Governor Duncan, but then we can open up the floor to everyone um, and, and kind of when, whether any structural changes need to be made to our political system in order to appeal to swing voters, to independents, to not just the party faithful. You, you mentioned Herschel Walker and how you found him to be a very flawed candidate, but at the same time, I mean, he cruised through the Republican primary. Um, and the way our system works, you, you got to get through your primary and it tends to only really attract your, your most kind of party faithful on either side. Should changes be made to how we nominate folks, how we nominate candidates? So maybe you can get more consensus folks. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't propose any sort of structural changes to the political process. You know, I always in a lot of speeches that I'm given around the country, I come back to we the people. Right? We have allowed candidates to enter from the extremes during the political process and coming either from the far right or the far left, and then they kind of work their way towards the middle, and then they went wherever they stall out with support. It's kind of where they grow their roots, and that's definitely outside, you know, in the in the edge elements. But the problem is once you finally get elected and you short circuit the primary process, and you win a general barely, now you've got to govern with all this baggage from one of the extremes, either the far left or the far right. Joe Biden certainly experiencing that right now, right? He had to enter through the far left. My point is, if Republicans want to like almost guarantee victory in these big elections, right? 24 and the Senate majorities and grow on the House majorities. Then just imagine if you entered through the middle and worked your way outwards, right? You, you, you garnered support from folks that are like, hey, this is a level-headed individual. Uh, you know, I agree with the majority of what they're saying. Not everything, but man, they're not calling names. They're not embarrassing me when I go to the office or church. And then you work your way towards those tougher issues. Uh, to me, that's a winning strategy. It's out there. I mean, the acronym I always give is pet project, policy, empathy, and tone. Right? I, as a conservative, I think our policies absolutely make sense, especially in the days and times that we're in around inflation and the border 
all these easy layups for us to just put policies on display, using a little more empathy to kind of understand the other side's argument, not, you know, just fear monger or, or call names, but truly understand it and round out the edges and then just use a tone that, my gosh, just invite the crowd to come your direction and listen to you instead of alienating everybody who's on the other side of the, of, of the issue. Jordan, jump in. Sure. I, I think the General Assembly is going to look into that, probably not because they, they want more people or less people involved in a primary, um, mainly because runoff system in the state of Georgia, we are the only state that has a, a general election runoff. And so I think they're going to start looking into runoffs in general and look into reforming that process. And there, there are many options out there that they can consider. But at the end of the day, the reality is the General Assembly is going to make the decision um, on, on that topic. And when it, when it comes to are we getting too many extreme candidates out of a primary, um, the voters of Georgia are making these selections. So we can't ignore that completely. <laughs> They're the ones who are making they, they decided to push through Herschel Walker. Um, so you, you can't blame candidates or the consultants necessarily on that, and you can't really blame the voters. You, you, do, you do need a, a larger group of people voting in our primaries. I think the reason why you're seeing a lot of the extremists come out of the primary is because so few people are engaged in the primary uh, to begin with. And there are a number of conservatives out there that only vote in the general. I think that's going to start changing in the next couple of years as well. So we'll, we'll see what all happens. Eric, um, I think Jordan makes a point that we, we need to talk about. It, she's right. It was, it was primary voters themselves, Georgians, who put Herschel Walker in, in a position to lose uh, the general election runoff for the United States Senate, which suggests that, in this case, Republicans— uh, have to deal with a a grip that Donald Trump and the um, and and I want to say his policies, but they're not policies. And what he says about fraudulent elections and um, and and the like um, that the Republicans need to figure out a way to break that grip moving forward in this state and they, nationally as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest problems, I think, is almost bigger than Donald Trump are the enablers or all the people that, you know, the elected officials that, you know, don't want to challenge, uh, you know, Trump and the conspiracies that, that he was peddling. Um, you know, look, you know, for a party to grow, it's about addition, not subtraction. And you have to appeal to a broader audience. Uh, you know, Jordan's right. You know, the people, the Republican primary voters you know, selected these candidates, some of whom are, you know, more extreme than 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 others. But the way to change that is to change who's voting in these primaries. And the way to do that is to appeal to a broader electorate. And, you know, I remember in 2012, after Mitt Romney lost the presidential race, the Republican National Committee did an autopsy to look at what happened. And one of the things they realized is they were not uh, speaking to the changing demographics of the country, the growing Hispanic population, the African-American population. And, you know, it's a challenge to uh, the party that they have to, they don't necessarily they don't have to change their principles, but they need to show up and they need to talk to 
various demographic groups. And then so what happened in the next presidential election? You had candidates like Jeb Bush, who took that, you know, autopsy report to heart, but then just got stomped on by Donald Trump, who, as I said before, was appealing to those that felt disenfranchised and he became the vessel for them. And unfortunately, we're still living through that process. But I do think that, you know, whether it's people like Jeff Duncan or, or others that are willing to speak out uh, and appeal to a broader audience. I mean, you saw there were certain demographic groups where the Republicans did better this last cycle uh, than in the past. And I think, you know, we need to do more and more of that. And I think by the if you look at the governor and how well he did uh, in the general election, it showed that he had a broader base of support because he's clearly doing something right. So I think it's easy with the the media, especially the national media and social media, to put so much emphasis on the former president. But we also need to look at, you know, the success of people like Governor Kemp and, and how all the other Republican statewide office holders, you know, got reelected. There's a reason for that, because they did a good job and their voters rewarded them for it. On that note, I have a question for Jordan, who just ran the campaign. And, and can you talk a little bit about how you appeal to different groups of folks who might not traditionally be Republicans and, and ways that you might have been able to do that? I know in general, like, for example, Kev did, you know, better with black men maybe than Republicans had been doing in the past. What was Secretary Raffensperger's strategy for, for reaching out to non-traditional voters? And do you think that you were able to accomplish that? I think our strategy was pretty simple. It was we were going to take every meeting, every anywhere we were invited, that's where the secretary was, was going. Um, we peeled back this notion that the election had been stolen, and we, we took every single question. And uh, we, we, we also didn't shy away from the, the, the very Trumpy parts of the, the party as well. We, we spoke to them. We, asked, we answered all of their questions. Um, there, there was a very uncomfortable debate in the primary that was completely rigged for Jody Heiss, and um, that, that was entertaining to watch. And um, So, you know, we, we didn't shy away from trying to peel off a handful of Trump voters and, and, and bring them into the fold and let them know that, hey, here's the process, and here's how people um, manipulated how you view the process now. And some of them we were able to win over. There's going to be a group that we never, ever reach, and, and that's okay, too. But at the end of the day, what we were looking for was to push back on the disinformation that came out of the 2020 and 2018 elections. And they were identical. They, had, they were related to the voting machines, and they were related to the absentee ballot process. And from our team's standpoint, we were very – consistent on pushing back on those claims from both sides. And I think that's what voters want from a secretary of state. They don't want a secretary of state that's going to go in and, you know, demand results to be the way the way he wants it. It's it's the voters of Georgia. And in 2020, the voters of Georgia didn't vote for Donald Trump. He, he lost here in the state. And then in 2019, Stacey Abrams didn't win. And one of the things that I think is a little bit damning about both of these candidates is that they're not really saying, you know, the election was stolen from me. What they're really saying to voters is, how dare you not vote for us? And I, I think that is a problem. And I think voters are starting to hold those two individuals accountable. 
Jeff Duncan, uh, this part of the conversation reminds me, going back to your book again, GOP 2.0, you talk about that night at the uh, rally uh, that Trump held, and you talk about the fact that he was speaking strictly to people who were already going to vote for him. He was in a part of the state where he knew he would win the vote. And and you say, uh, you, you have a good illusion, you say he was trying to wring a few drops out of a wash rag um, when uh, the real answer to uh, filling up a bucket is to pour more water, it, pour more water into it. As Eric Tannenblatt would say it, it's all about addition, <laughs> not subtraction. Jeff? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And look, it doesn't take you know, uh, a rocket science degree to figure that out, right? I mean, that's just common sense. He was stroking his ego through the process. You could see that train wreck coming, by the way, right? I mean, if, you're, if you take enough truth serum as a Republican, you could, you could see how Donald Trump was misstepping along the way. And, and, and then when the whole 2020 debacle, uh, post-election debacle showed up, you could totally get it. You know, Georgia, and I want to make sure we, we, we take this for in stride. Georgia has taken our Trump medicine quicker than most of our other peers has, right? I mean, as you mentioned earlier, Bill, we've got huge majorities in the state House, the state Senate, all eight statewide constitutional officers. Brian Kemp beat Donald Trump's best friend and David Perdue in a primary by 50-plus points. That never happens. And then he beats, you know, Stacey Abrams by nearly eight points. You know, we've taken our medicine quicker than others. And Brian Kemp and his campaign should be a case study for Republicans all over the country to say, look, if we make this about our leadership style, if we make this about our decision-making, if we make this about our policies, we can run laps around our competition in most cases, right? I mean, Stacey Abrams was had the highest name idea maybe of any candidate ever and had more money than any other a challenger ever. And there was never a doubt, really. I mean, I don't think any of us really woke up scared that she was going to beat Brian Kemp in the closing months of the campaign. You know, and, and so I think we took our medicine quicker than the rest of the country with one exception, and that was the Herschel Walker race, right? We allowed 12 months ago Donald Trump to short-circuit it, and, and look, nothing said over-the-top right-wing conservative around Herschel Walker. He was just a flawed candidate. He just didn't have the metrics to overcome a sitting U.S. senator that had already won a statewide race. All right, we got to get to our first break of the show, uh, but when we come back, we'll have a lot more with our panel. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're talking to some top Georgia Republicans today about the lessons they took out of the midterm elections. And before you send me angry emails or tweet at me, we're going to do the same with Democrats uh, at the beginning of next week. We just want to give both sides a chance to 
evaluate how these elections uh, turned out. We're joined by Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who I have to say you all out there know because you've heard this before. We see each other because we have WebEx up. And I have to say, uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan is wearing his John Fetterman gray T-shirt sweatshirt (laughs) (laughs) in his office today. We're also joined by Jordan Fuchs and Eric Tannenblatt and Tamar Hallerman of the AJC. And Tamar, I know you want to uh, jump in right now. So I want to start with Eric, and then I'll open it up to, to everyone, because I'm curious about your answers on this. So, Eric, you mentioned that the autopsy that the RNC famously did after the 2012 election, looking at what went wrong. And of course, the answer was we need to expand who we are talking to, especially with Latinos, in order to grow our base. Um, Let's look at Georgia in 2022 going into 2023. This is an increasingly diverse state. Atlanta, of course, is a magnet, especially for well-educated black people coming down here, lots of folks migrating down from the north. Of course, a growing Latino population, growing AAPI population. As you look at the Republican Party in Georgia, where can it go? Who do you think it can appeal to? And what are the messages that can help appeal the party to those groups? Well, that's a that's a good question, but I think that um, the, the party can appeal to all groups. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, from a policy standpoint, you know, there, there are some, you know, common beliefs among various demographic groups. You know, sometimes we tend to put labels that this is a Republican uh, group and this is a Democratic group, you know. You know, the Hispanic population is is very conservative, and there's a lot of things that they share uh, with uh, the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot that can be done with the Latino population. I think it's the African-American community. You know, one thing that I've noted over my years involved in Georgia politics is that Republican incumbents tend to do better with certain demographic groups when they run for reelection than when they run the first time because they're suspect when they're running the first time. But then when they're in office and they demonstrate that they actually care about everyone and they're, you know, working towards putting policies in place that impact everyone, then those demographic groups are willing to, um, you know, vote for them when they run for reelection. I would imagine, I haven't looked at all of the data, but if you look at some of the incumbents that got reelected, the Republicans from the governor on down, I would imagine that uh, they did better among certain uh, demographic groups. So I don't think that, you know, Republicans need to change, you know, what issues are core to who they are. It's just they need to reach out and show up and speak to groups and engage in conversation. The other thing that I think needs to happen that, you know, you see it down at the General Assembly, it doesn't get a whole lot of uh, publicity, but Republicans and Democrats need to work together. And they, they do at the General Assembly But we tend to focus more on, you know, the big, high-profile issues that tend to be partisan. But the more you could forge uh, collaboration between uh, the two parties working on issues that benefit, you know, constituents, uh, the better. And I think that that pays dividends when it comes to uh, when candidates run for election or re-election. I'd love to get everybody else in on this, but but Eric, I, I do want to ask you a question. I think you're a little overly sanguine about the ongoing influence of Donald Trump and other extremists in the Republican Party. If Jeff Duncan talks about starting from the middle and expanding the party from there, Republicans have to deal with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, whose extreme uh, rhetoric 
uh, behavior is obviously never going to reach uh, voters who are more moderate. Donald Trump is still a commanding presence uh, in the Republican Party. His dinner with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West, his comments about the Constitution. I get that, that yes, Georgians rejected the Trump candidates themselves. Um, and part of the reason they did is because people like Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, having rejected Trump, were sort of able to position themselves as moderates, which they're not. So, But I do think you're being a little bit too sanguine in thinking that you can uh, move forward with a more moderate Republican Party while those other forces are in play. Well, I'm not talking about necessarily moving forward with a moderate with a more moderate Republican Party by saying, you know, reach out. I, I don't think it's fair just to look at people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and quite honestly, Donald Trump and hold them out as the poster children. I mean, I, you probably could do that more with the former president than Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, you know, I, I think she completely acts you know, inappropriate for uh, a member of Congress. And, you know, she she likes the, you know, she likes this. She's a celebrity on the fringe. And fortunately, her constituents, she comes from a conservative district. And, you know, maybe she does great constituent services and they don't want to, you know, throw her out. But I, I think she's looked at, I mean, I hate to say it because I don't want to be disrespectful to a member of Congress, but I think she's perceived in most circles as a joke. Uh, now, in the case of Donald Trump, I, I've already said this, I think his uh, allure is waning. And, you know, yes, he was the former Republican president. So obviously he's the 800 pound gorilla uh, in the party. But with all of the every day that goes by and, you know, and he's outside of the White House, he's looked at differently. And I think this election cycle and the losses of all the candidates that he endorsed is an indication of that. I, I guess I asked you this question. You know, if there was a primary uh, in the Republican Party for president, who is going to vote for Donald Trump this time that didn't vote for him last time? I don't think that there's any you know, group out there that's clamoring to you know, jump on the Trump bandwagon. If anything, I think he's losing support each day. Lieutenant Governor Duncan, jump in. Yeah. So Donald Trump confused Republicans all over, over the country. Right. And over this over this multi-year transition, he confused us to to think. The, the angrier we are, the more conservative we are, right? That's really what, what his brand of conservatism really turned out to be, this how visceral and vile can you get? And if, if that's the case, let's take Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example. What has she done conservative for her district? What conservative policies, what conservative programs, what conservative energy has she put inside of that 14th congressional district? All she's done is pour battery acid in everybody's water. That's it. Right? And so I think going back to the original part of the question, if we want to grow the party, I think voters and especially social media has allowed this to, to, to be more prevalent, have a good sense of smell. Right? They have a really, really, really good sense of smell. And so when you try to just pander to a certain audience, whether it be a minority audience, a gender audience, a geographic audience, when you just try to pander to them, I think they, for the major, majority, see through it. We have to lead with our policies. If we want to gain bigger crowds inside the metro areas around the country, Go be the conservative solution to combat crime. Let's go turn back the tide on defunding the police. Let's make folks on the other side of that issue to be accountable for it. If we want to, you know, look at Ron DeSantis' model to, uh, four years ago when he won the gubernatorial race. He took school choice to the folks, to the families in Miami, and won a huge swath of African-American voters that came his way. 
right? These are issues and policies that we can lead on as Republicans to gain in all of these different economic sectors, geographic sectors, gender sectors, and certainly race areas. Tomorrow. Lieutenant Governor Duncan, I'm glad you brought up Ron DeSantis because that he was somebody I wanted to ask about and whether potentially he could be an off-ramp for the party in terms of Trump because he, he has similar policies. Um, and he also has, you know, he can be kind of sharp-elbowed, but it's very different still from the way that Trump talks. Um, and so I'm curious what you think of him. Is he kind of the future of the Republican Party? Is he the way to kind of wean, you know, the base off of Trumpism? Or are there other voices that you think who could be um, big national leaders in 2024? Yeah, I think Ron DeSantis is starting this 2024 presidential nominee process, you know, 20 yards in front of everybody else, right? He had a huge win in Florida. He absolutely, you know, took a purple state and turned it bright red. Uh, he has certainly led on a number. And like Governor Kemp, he got the COVID situation as as right as anybody else did um, as far as uh, from his governor's stance. Uh, but, you know, I think it's going to be up to Ron DeSantis, right? What kind of leader does he want to be? Does he want to be the one that 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 deals with everybody that, that's, that's, you know, chomping at his ankles? Is he going to want to take on Donald Trump when he's inev inevitably going to start poking at him? Or does he want to look forward? Does he want to really paint a vision for American, for Republicans and for moderates to say, you know what? That's the voice I want leading us. I oftentimes talk about this in, in, in these speeches when, you know, the questions always come like, well, what, what is next for our country and for our party? I think this country is one conservative leader away from getting back on track, right? If I walk into a room, and I, a bipartisan room, and I say, raise your hand if you think the political system's broken. Everybody on both sides of the aisle, raise their hands. I think we're one conservative leader away from truly turning the tide in this country. And, and Ron DeSantis and, and others like him are going to have a choice. What kind of leader do they want to be? Do they want to get caught in the, the ground skirmish and play the small ball game of Twitter? Do they want to, you know, throw barbs out? Uh, to be determined, but I'm hopeful for somebody to step up in the Republican Party. Jordan, I, I think what the lieutenant governor says is really interesting, uh, that we're one conservative leader away from righting the problems with the country. But, of course, what that means is, a, it, you know, I— I think obviously there are Democrats out there who would totally disagree with that. But if that is, in fact, uh, a possible, then it is going to require a Republican Party that has specific ideas and policies to uh, talk about moving forward. I think that's the case. And, I, and I'm, I'm probably not in a position where I can expound on all of that. But I, I think... If, if we're talking about the party infrastructure moving forward, I think the Republican leadership within the party needs to um, kind of shape up and start identifying ways to deliver wins for the Republican candidates that they are charged with representing. And right now they are clearly not doing that. And so they need to do the absentee ballot chase programs. They need to do robust get out the vote programs. And the messaging comes from the campaign. They, they can kind of stand down from that uh, if they would like. But the campaigns are, are leading on the messaging. All right. We've got to get to our final break of the show. More to talk about with this panel in just a moment. Tamar Hallerman, Jordan Fuse, Eric Tannenblatt, and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan join us for today's uh, Political Rewind as we talk about uh, politics moving forward. Uh, Jeff Duncan, I want to go back. I, there were so many interesting little tidbits in, in, in your book when I read uh, GOP 2.0. Uh, 
you talk about how important it is that we find ways that we can actually between Republicans and Democrats, have meaningful dialogues. We're not going to agree on every issue, but we ought to be able to talk uh, in, in respectful and meaningful ways to reach decisions about important policy. I love the quote. Is it from Ed Koch, who told voters, <laughs> agree with me nine times out of 12, vote for me. Agree with me 12 times out of 12, see a psychiatrist. <laughs> I thought that was a great quote. And apropos of kind of overcoming gridlock. <laughs> yeah, and you know, for me, that, that's been the greatest part of the last four years for me in the Senate. And, you know, it's an inside baseball game. If you're, I mean, you got to really be you know, close to the inner circle to watch how the Senate operated the last four years. But if you were a senator and you were a Democratic senator or a Republican senator, uh, you were always involved in the conversation, right? There was never a bill or a subject matter that was untouchable from your opinion, whether it be in the committee. I made some early promises to all the senators on both sides of the aisle. I said that honesty was going to be the currency that I traded. If you wanted to kind of find yourself in important roles and you wanted to be an influencer in the Senate, then honesty was going to be the way to do it. And then also I wanted to make sure everybody felt engaged in the committee process and the legislative process. Four years, not perfect, but very, very, very good direction we took. I think we walked out of there after four years with support from both sides of the aisle as to how the process worked. Right? I think I, I go back to the hate crimes legislation. I mean, it was probably one of the most meaningful pieces of work that I've been a part of professionally, legislatively, you name it, because we took such a, a polarizing issue inside the Senate, shepherded it through, took opinions from all parts of the part of, uh, partisan spectrum, and we came out with something that was really important for Georgia. And it helped heal uh, part of the divide. So the body of work for the last four years, although not perfect, I think was, was very, uh, uh, very much like what I talked about in the book as far as how we can move forward. Tomorrow? L.G. Duncan, when you look at the future of the Republican Party in Georgia, who are some up-and-coming leaders? And let's take out the current class of, let's take out Governor Kemp and Brad Raffensperger and kind of the people in power right now, but who's up-and-coming who you think uh, could help be, become the Republican Party's future in Georgia, and why? Yeah, I'd love to give you a long list of names, uh, and it's not because, you know, they're not out there. I just, I think the, the area of focus is is. Anybody who wants to embrace Brian Kemp and his strategy, not, not the name Brian Kemp, but, but the approach he's taken over the last four years, that's a serious-minded, policy-driven individual that really gets up every day. And, you know, I've been with Brian Kemp, and yeah, I, I've been with him in, you know, at a Bay of Cameras in front of you, and I've been with him one-on-one -on -one when we're making some of the most complicated COVID decisions out there that just maybe didn't seem like they made sense at the time to the outside world, but to the inside small business person. Um, and so, look, we got a lot of work to do in Georgia, um, but we, we definitely are starting ahead of the game from other states. But it's up to us. What are we going to do? Right? Are we going to be small-minded small and, and, and just pick at every little issue because it gets us four more likes on Facebook or Twitter? Or are we truly going to lead? And that's where the Republican Party – I think the state party as a whole, uh, you know, has got to look – I think we've got to hold that group very, very accountable for the actions that they've taken the last couple of years. Because they certainly not have had the best interest of the strongest Republican leaders at, at heart. Um, well, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, I think we really would be remiss if we didn't ask you about your future. You chose you you chose not to run for uh, uh, re-election. Um, you'll be your time is soon going to be up. 
Uh, Bert Jones, who, by the way, was an election denier who was one of the fake electors, steps up and takes your place as lieutenant governor. But what do you see when you launch GOP 2.0? Is that um, with the intention down the road of building a constituency for you to run yet again for another office? Well, you know, this started a couple of years ago, this fire in my belly of wanting to kind of reframe and rebuild the Republican Party nationally. And that was really the genesis behind 2.0. I mean, I started writing that book in an outline format even before the 2020 debacle. Um, and so all of these ideas of working together across coalitions, uh, you know, using a policies to lead and a better tone, that, that, that was all making sense for me beforehand. And I just, you know, this, this fire burning in me is to have this conversation with America. And I love the job of Lieutenant Governor. It really, truly fit our family. It fit, you know, kind of fit my, my style and strategy. But I can't have a conversation with America if I'm just limited to the role of lieutenant governor and focusing in solely on that job description, which is a pretty intense job. And so that's really what kind of freed me up from not running again was to have that conversation with America. I'm going to you know, soak back into the private sector. I enjoy doing that. Uh, I'm relatively good at it. Uh, so I'm going to go make some money to pay for three expensive kids. And, you know, Bill, if one day it leads me back to elected office, that's great. I'm, I'm wide open to that opportunity. I just Right now, that's not the right place for me or my family. Eric, thank you for, for that. Uh, we'll be interested in hearing what you do do as you move forward. Um, Eric, I think the lieutenant governor said something important a second ago about the fact that Republicans, uh, the Republican Party in this state has not served the best interests of its leaders. I think that's essentially what he said, meaning uh, someone like a Brian Kemp. And I assume that has to do uh, to a large extent, with the kind of Trump-focused um, uh, people, leaders who have been uh, overseeing the party itself. So what do you do about that? Well, uh, in May, the Georgia Republicans will have an opportunity to uh, elect or reelect uh, the chairman of the party, and there's a process for that. I've always been of the belief that the governor is the titular head of the party in the state. And, you know, I think that people look to the governor as opposed to the state party. The role, the role of the state party has evolved over the years. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, when Republicans didn't hold all these state offices, uh, the party was the only game in town. But now it's... Um, it's it's obviously has a different role because you have all these elected officials. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump in. Except we're running short time. Uh, uh, tomorrow, what Jeff Duncan didn't say, and certainly this brings us back to your uh, beat, the special prosecutor, um, is uh, he didn't talk about he didn't say David Schaefer specifically, the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, a strong MAGA Trumpite who too it was one of the uh, fake electors. Um, you can't. You can't broaden the appeal of the party when people like that are running it, I would assume. You know, at the same time, David Schaefer has a huge base of support among the most active folks in the party, the people who wake up and on a Saturday morning will attend a party meeting at some hotel ballroom, you know, somewhere in Georgia. So there's definitely a kind of diverging paths in the GOP with Schaefer and his folks and kind of the governor and his allies. And the party's going to have to reconcile that in the years ahead. Um, all right, uh, Jordan Fuchs, before we leave, and we are almost out of time, taking you back to your position at, in the Secretary of State's office, and you've alluded to it a, a bit early in the show, do you imagine that, that we're going to see, with the Secretary of State's office support, 
changes in how runoff elections are held in this state. You did mention it briefly, but do we specifically think the legislature will take that up and the Secretary of State's office will be involved in that? I, I do believe that we'll be involved in the process. We're not going to take a specific stance on what type of runoff there should be. I think that needs to be decided by leadership in the General Assembly. So we'll see what they end up doing. All right. Um, we are completely out of time for uh, today's show. Jordan Fuchs, thank you for making this your last appearance as a political partisan as you head back to the Secretary of State's office. Eric Tannenblatt, you know we always love having you as a panelist on the show. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, thank you uh, for, for being on today. Thanks for your service and good luck as you move back off into the private sector. Tamar Hallerman, I'll see you again very, very soon. We're out of time. Back again tomorrow. Today, by the way, we're uh, preparing our Political Rewind newsletter. It'll come out tomorrow. You can get it by going to gpb.org newsletters. Bye-bye, everybody.